0: Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of the Psalms and to Psalm 19. And in just a moment, we'll read through that. But before I do that, give us a little bit of introduction to Psalm 19. I'm going to start in this way. I know Winston Churchill, and I can prove it. He was born November 30th, 1874, at Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire, if I can say that correctly, England. He was a statesman, he was a soldier, he was a prime minister from 1940 to 1945, and then again from 1951 to 1955. He served in many different political offices, he served in many ways in the military, and he's considered one of the greatest statesmen and political figures of the 20th century. But what I perhaps should have said is that I know about Winston Churchill. I have a general knowledge. But I don't know what he enjoyed doing. I don't know what his hobbies were. I don't know what his sense of humor was like or what it was like to sit down and have lunch with Winston Churchill. I may know some effects of his life, but I never knew Winston Churchill personally. I did not know what made him tick or what really made him who he was. So you can only know so much about somebody by learning secondhand information, information off a history book, for instance. Of course, a big help would be to go back and listen to some of his speeches, some of his lectures, some of his talks, maybe some of his memoirs, some of his letters. But even that would be nothing compared to sitting down and having dinner with Winston Churchill and asking him about his life. What are his likes? What are his dreams? What does he really live for? So knowledge of God in the world is similar. God is the great creator, and so the world understandably has his imprint, it has his character built into its very fabric. So nature tells us that there is a God. It tells us a lot about who that God is, what that God must be like. But we need more direct communication, we need more information if we are to truly know who God is, and really, consequently, who we are as a result So God has given us more than his general revelation, more than this general knowledge that comes by creation. And he's done that by giving us his law, by giving us his word. And so we must respond to that revelation, that knowledge, internally and externally. We have to receive it and understand it, but we have to meditate it on it and pack it away into our hearts and learn from it. So this is really the thesis of this sermon, if you will. Because God is both creator and lawgiver, we must worship in word and heart. So that's kind of where we're headed with everything. So with that introduction, let's read Psalm 19, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So there are really two categories we need to define before we continue in this passage. And both fall under the category of God's revelation. Our God is not a silent God. He speaks to us. He interacts. He tells us who he is and what he is like. And there's really two types of revelation that we receive from the Lord. So the first is a general revelation. That is God speaking to us through creation, through the natural order, through the world. So not only the inanimate things around us, but even how our own bodies are made. The wonder of the human body. That's a form of general revelation that points us to a higher power that there is a God. So everyone who ever lived has had this general revelation to tell them that there is a God. But this type of revelation has its limits. Looking at the sky can only tell you so much about who God is before you have to go beyond that, before you have to ask more questions. And that's when we get to the second type of revelation, which is special revelation. And it's really what it sounds like. It's special, extra revelation of who God is and who we are. And of course, we find that in Scripture, in the Bible, that's the best example we have of God speaking to his people. So in that Bible, he tells us about who he is, who we are, how far short we fall of his wonder and his perfection, and that we need a Savior. So if we're to understand Psalm 19 correctly, then we have to keep these two concepts in mind. This, these two forms of God's revelation to us, because that's what David is going to go through. So the first point we're going to look at is really looking at verses 1 through 6. And the point is that because God is the creator, we must worship with our words. So as we go through, hopefully we'll see that that's proven true by David's words. So Psalm 19, I don't know about you, it's one of my favorite psalms in the whole book, but really the whole Bible is one of my favorite chapters. C.S. Lewis said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Another theologian named Peter Craigie said that this psalm combines the most beautiful poetry with some of the most profound biblical theology. It's a very rich psalm. And in this psalm, we see that creation itself speaks to the character of God and his works in the world. So God spoke creation into being, and it stands as a witness of his power continually. God the Father is a spirit, meaning we cannot actually see him. But he does not leave us without clues to his existence. So think about the wind. You don't see the wind blowing, but you see it hitting a tree and moving the tree. You may not see it, but you can hear it when it hits something. So though it is invisible to our sight, it leads to effects in the world around us, effects that we can see and understand to know that it is there. So God chose to create an entire universe that would reflect who he is. He created us in the world, and it is in that creation that we see his work displayed every day. So David goes on to list many areas in which creation bears the mark of its creator. So first, he says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky his handiwork. For all of time, man has been stricken and has wondered as he looks up at the sky, To see the greatness of the universe, to see the great expanse above you, it really boggles the mind. The power and vastness of the sky and space and stars, it can tell us many things about God. First, it teaches us that we are rather small. We're not in control of very much, but someone is. And so we see God's might and his infinite power being worked out in creation through this vast universe. He's imprinted his nature on the world the nature of his power. We can also look at the beauty, the variation, the complexity of creation to see that God is intelligent. He is creative. And he has created a nature that is orderly. It's not chaos. There is an order and a rhythm and logic to how things work. Furthermore, we can see the rejection of every human explanation for the universe because there is no purely natural process that can Explain the creation of reality as it is. It can't explain its continuing nature or how orderly it is. Also, look at the verbs declare and proclaim there. They are continuous verbs. So it's not saying at one point in time, nature and the sky, they declare God's glory and then they stopped. They are declaring and proclaiming the glory of God at every instant of creation from the time God brought them into being by the power of his word to now and continuing to the end of the world. They will continue to proclaim his might and his glory. So we move into verse 2. We really see this idea being continued that every day and every night they speak to us. They continually reveal knowledge. So some emphasis is being added. So by looking at the world around us, we can begin to learn more about God. We can see more of his power and his might. You can look at the trees. I'm somebody who was raised hiking in the mountains. I love looking at nature. I love looking at trees. And my dad would quiz us on trees as we would walk through the woods. What was that one? What was that one? And I'd get maybe half of them right. But I knew half of them, so I was happy with that. But you can look and wonder, why did God not just make white oaks? It's a great tree. Just white oaks, the whole world with white oaks. But he didn't just make white oaks. He made sugar maples, he made willows, he made fruit trees, aspens, bushes, sourwoods, dogwoods, thousands of varieties of hardwoods. But he didn't just make hardwoods. He made balsams, he made pines, he made firs, he made spruces. he go through every grass and bush, and again, there's thousands of varieties of all these things. Why would that be? Could God not have just made kudzu and let it cover the entire world and leave it at that? It's a plant. So think about the creativity, the complexity, and the power and wisdom of God just in making varieties of plants. So you look through it, it really becomes shocking to think about. And through that, we can see more of God and who he is, more of his character, just by looking at trees. So verses three and going into four, they're very interesting because now we're told the extent of the speech of nature. So language, or nature obviously doesn't use actual words. It doesn't say, hey, there's a God, wake up. But through the power of creation, we see it speaking every day. So from the beginning of time till now, it continues to speak and explain more about the fact that there is a glorious God out there. So David's really saying that no one can deny No one can ignore, no one can refute the general revelation which we see in creation. When you look in verses 4 and 6, we see that David switches to the sun and its power as an illustration. So God has made creation to be seen and studied. That is what it means that God has set a tent on the earth for the sun. That the light comes and it is housed on the sun so that the glory of God in creation can be on full display. It's like the light on a display case. It's always on so that we can see what's going on. So he next speaks of the sun as the crowning pinnacle of the natural world. Now, he's not proposing a solar system model where we are static and the sun rotates around us. That is not David's point here. Really what he's referring to with the language in Psalm 19 is that the sun runs its course seemingly tirelessly. It's like a great athlete who never gets tired and always runs the race perfectly every day again and again and again. So the sun goes out, it gives us light, it gives us warmth, and it reveals every aspect of life on the earth. So what can we learn from this section of general revelation in Psalm 19? Well, first, I think there's a lesser to greater argument taking place. Creation is a living organism that bears the marks of its maker. So if creation, which cannot actually physically use words, speaks and declares the glory of God continually every single day, as it's been doing for all of time, how much more should we? So mankind is made in the very image of God, which is not said of any other physical or natural body in the universe. The complexity of our own bodies is a marker of God's creative power. But we have to ask the question, are our tongues declaring the glory and majesty of God as his natural creation does every day? Second, are we taking a note from and learning from creation? So does looking at the heavens fill you with wonder and lead you to contemplate the greatness and the power of our creator, that he could put it all in place, that he can sustain it at every moment. When you listen to thunder shaking your house because of a lightning storm, do you just think, oh, that's a cool natural phenomenon, I'm glad that developed, or do you think the power of God is immense and that's just a tiny hint of his power? So perhaps we should think of the world as a tutor to teach us more about the power and immensity of God. Third, are we seeking to be productive with our work as God was with his? Now, God's work was to display his person and his glory in the creation. So, does our work declare the glory of God in the same manner, or are we seeking to make our own names great? Are we seeking to make our kingdoms last forever instead of praising the one whose kingdom does last forever? So does your life speak to the greatness of God? So we have to take a note about something, though, about general revelation. If we stop here, we're really missing something. So we've learned a lot from it. It can teach us a lot, but there are other things that we have to know in order to glorify God correctly. So it does not take living much on this earth to know we're sinful. There's a problem between us and God. There's something going on that we need to know more about. And that's why David doesn't stop in this section of general revelation. He moves on in verse 7. So we're going to look at this under our second point. Because God is the lawgiver, we must worship with our hearts. Because God is the lawgiver, we must worship with our hearts. And this is really looking at verse 7 and on. So David realized that general revelation was not the stopping point for mankind. It was never meant to be the final word to mankind of God's revelation. So as wonderful as it is that declaring and proclaiming the glory of God is just one aspect of his revelation to mankind. And that's why David moves on in verses 7 through 11. He brings up the other type of revelation to round out the picture. So now we move on to the greater and fuller special revelation of God. So instead of only his work speaking for him, which is still present, now his special revelation, his actual words go to his people. So we can see this by looking at how David refers to God in verses 1 and then in verse 7. In verse 1, David uses the word God. God is a general generic word. Now, it, of course, for us refers to the God of all gods and that no other God is a true God. But even other gods in the Old Testament who were false gods had this same title at points. So that's a general revelation. It tells you there is a God. But now we look at verse 7. And do you notice the name that David uses to refer to God? It's Lord in all caps. That's Yahweh. God's special covenant name that he only gave to his own people to use. So even in God's names in this text, we see that God is, that David is moving through a different revelation that now God, in special revelation, is moving on to his covenant people. So before we dive into the descriptions of God's special revelation, I think we need to understand something about God's law. God's law, we we sometimes think of that as a bad thing, or we hear Pharisaism in that. But God's law is a reflection of his eternal moral character. So let's just talk about some of the Ten Commandments for just a moment. God didn't decide to impose arbitrary laws on his people just to see, hey, will they follow this? That's not why he did that. He said, you shall have no other gods before me because he is the only true God and the only one worthy of praise. Even nature declares his glory and his power and acknowledges him to be the only true God. He established the Sabbath and worship for us to observe after the example that he set. In creation. So just as He rested on the seventh day, He wants us to. How about the commandment, you shall not murder? Well, God is a God of love and justice, and we have to imitate Him in that. So murdering another human being is not just breaking that law, but it's killing somebody made in the image of God. So the law is God's very moral self given to us through special revelation. So if we want to truly appreciate who God is, we have to understand His law and how it points to His greatness and majesty. So the description of God's special revelation in verses 7 through 9 follows a pattern. First, there's a synonym for the law of God. And then David gives a description of that law with the word. So right, just, something like that. And then he explains something about what it does. It enlightens the eyes. Something like that. So there's six of those that he goes through, and all are fairly similar. They even overlap at points, but I think there are things we can see that differentiate them. So let's go through these. So first, David says that the law is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, law, the Hebrew word for Torah, has a sense of instruction and teaching. So the idea is that the law of God is the perfect standard from which to learn and study. So anyone who subjects himself to the teaching of the law of God in its entirety will be learning from the only perfect resource. So not only that, the promise is that the law revives the soul. I think you can understand that in a few different ways. The law of God working within us can lead us to repentance and faith, and it can heal us of a dead, cold heart. Broken relationships, cycles of sin, poor living can all be affected by the word of God. They can all be transformed. And lastly, I think there is a refreshing aspect to the law. It renews our strength, comforts us, and it prepares us for every battle coming our way. Second, God's testimony is sure, making wise the simple. I think the best way to understand testimony is as a witness of the covenant God. God has left us ample evidence about his redemptive works on behalf of his people and his word. So he has given us the stipulations of the covenant or the requirements and proven the reliability of his word again and again. He has promised to redeem all who come to him and humble themselves in faith in Jesus Christ. So He's never going to leave one person out who truly repents and believes. And by his work, since we offer nothing on our own, as Ephesians 2 teaches, we are humbled before his grace and mighty works on behalf of his people. So no matter how foolish someone may be when they come to the faith, the Spirit will teach us humility through God's word working in us. The third description is that the precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. So this is the guidance which the covenantal law provides. God gives us directions on how to live our daily lives, and we have them as a guide and a teacher throughout our life. So we don't have to wonder how to obey God or how to follow him rightly. He gives us everything we need in his word to know how to please him. There's no guesswork involved, and for someone like me, that's a very wonderful thing. You don't want to have to guess how to serve the almighty creator. So his precepts are always right, true, perfect, pure, and holy. And we can delight in knowing that obeying God means we are on the path to righteousness because he cannot lead us astray. To do so would go against his very nature. He is everything that is good and he wants us to delight in him. We should be delighting in Yahweh. So fourth, the commandment is pure enlightening the eyes. And the sense of the commandment is essentially the same as the law. So there's a bit of repetition going on here. But the teaching of Scripture is pure and complete. There's no shortfall. There's no uncleanness to it. And therefore, it really sheds light on everything we do and everything we are. Think back to the example of the sun rising. It comes up and it illuminates the earth. And so we can see God's handiwork. In the same manner, his commandments enlighten our eyes to see his imprint upon every page of Scripture and every atom of creation. The Spirit Spirit at work within us allows us to hear our Father speaking to us through the Word and the Bible as He makes Himself more clear to us every day. Fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Proverbs teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, this isn't a cowering back in a corner, terrified, but irreverent and holy respect of the Almighty. So there's a healthy fear we should have of God. And I think the best way to equate this is if you have a good dad, one who's loved you, you want to you wanna honor your dad. You want your dad to be proud of you. But you're also scared of his wrath if you displease him. You want to please him. So that's more the reverence and the fear that I think we should have of the Lord. And David says of that fear, it's not something you would often think to say about fear of any kind. David says that it is clean. So it's safe, it's healthy, it's good. In the Old Testament, there were holy things and there were common things. And common things could be clean or unclean. In the Old Testament, you wanted to be clean because being unclean meant you couldn't go and worship at the temple. You had to be clean. And there were washings and different things to do. But the real problem is that there were a long list of things that could make you unclean and thus enable unable to go to the temple and worship. But what David is saying is that fearing the Lord... It will never lead to uncleanness. It will keep you clean forever. So all who keep God's commands and love him in this life will be forever with him in glory. And there will be no uncleanness then. So sixth, the last description David gives. His rules are true and righteous altogether. So another way to translate rules is judgments. Because it really refers to how to handle particular cases. Every commandment is correct and good in every situation and at all times, but how you apply them may change. The substance of the law will never change, but every situation is different, and sometimes you have to apply the law differently. They're always righteous and holy, and that should really embolden us. That should give us great confidence that the law of God is always right and always ready to help us identify what to do in every situation. So the revelation God has given us remains just as pure and holy as the God who gave them remains pure and holy and unchanging. So verses 10 and 11 move on from these descriptions to explain the value of the law with two pictures, two examples David uses. First, he says that the law is better than the purest gold around. And you can see David even repeats that in a different way. Better than gold, better than the finest gold. There is nothing valuable physically in this world that can be of greater value than the word of God. The law of God is of utmost importance. It is of utmost worth. Nothing can surpass it. You can acquire resources on earth all you want, but they're going to rust. They're going to decay. And when you die, you will not take them with you. But God's word remains and it remains sweet as honey. So again, you see David use that emphatic repetition. It's not just sweet. It's sweeter than the best honey, the tastiest honey. The word is far sweeter. So if you ever go to the grocery store, you know local honey is rather expensive. It takes a good den out of your wallet to buy some local honey, as good as it is. And in the ancient world, they didn't have refined sugar. They didn't have sugar beet, sugar cane. So that was your only option for sweetener. So that was a treat to get some honey. But as sweet and precious and rare as honey was to David's soul, the law was far sweeter. It brings a smile, it brings satisfaction to the soul, and it soothes the troubled heart. So David gives us two functions of the law. It's both a warning, but also a great blessing to keep. It's really a double-edged sword. It's back to the idea of Psalm 2, that it, it explains two paths in life, the path of the righteous in the path of the world or the ungodly so the word is an active judge either condemning or approving of all mankind living in rebellion to god's law will lead to active judgment and the law warns us about that danger but if we keep god's commandments then there is great reward because the only way to live a blessed life in this life is to follow the lord so we can see a change in the text as we move through to verses 12 and 13 So we've been talking about God's law, and now David kind of sees himself in relation to that law. And so he gives us some of the implications of the law of God. So verses 1 through 6, if you'll notice, they didn't give any implications. We went from general revelation, boom, done, started special revelation. But now we see this summary at the end. So now David moves on to see the effects of God's law on his own heart. So general revelation, it only pointed us to look for special revelation, whereas special revelation forces us to look at the heart. So the law exposes our hearts. We're not perfect beings, and therefore we break God's laws. So when we understand the word of God, we learn that we are sinful and unworthy of the great reward just mentioned. So David does not speak as a man trying to earn his way into heaven. He's not talking about earning salvation. He's talking as one who knows he has to go back to the Lord again and again in repentance every time he fails. He also asked God for forgiveness to show him his hidden sins and to give him victory over those sins. David understood that if we are walking with the Lord and faithfully repenting of our sin, then we are living a blameless life. And that doesn't mean a sinless life here in this world but one in which our sins are washed clean and we're continually going back in repentance. Then we get to the wonderful verse 14 that we read for our call to worship. And what David really prays is that his words would be pleasing to the Lord. So notice that his prayer, it really follows the larger pattern of the psalm we just went through. So just as creation's words proclaim God's glory and pour forth his wisdom, so David asks that his words would point to and declare the glory of God. Just as God's words were productive, bringing creation into existence, so David asked that his words might be fruitful and point to the greatness of Yahweh. Then David doesn't stop at words. He moves on to meditation. He asked that the meditation of his heart would be acceptable. And this really follows that second portion of Psalm 19 that focuses on God's law, that move into special revelation. Revelation. So just as David sought for his words to follow after God's pattern, now he asked that his heart would meditate on the attributes of God's heart, of God's very character. So here you see from David that the law is not really an external rule book, good for nothing else but being a good Pharisee. It's something to contemplate, to internalize, and to meditate on, because in so doing you are meditating on the actual character, the heart of God. Meditating on Scripture is the means by which the Spirit imprints it upon our hearts and sanctifies us more and more to be like the Lord. So Again, lest anyone think that David is promoting a works-based salvation, look at the end of verse 14. While he praises the greatness of God's revelation, he also knows he cannot fulfill it by merit. David prayed to Yahweh, his rock and redeemer. If you're going to earn it, you don't need to pray to your redeemer, do you? The Lord only enters into covenant with those whom he has redeemed. Salvation in the Old Testament, it was not earned through obedience to the law, but fear of the Lord. Because of God's law, David knew he needed a redeemer. He may not have known exactly what that redeemer was going to look like, who he would be, how he would save him. But he trusted God's promises that he would provide a redeemer, that he would be a safe shelter from his enemies, both physically and spiritually, internally and externally, So we know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that David trusted in. And we look at this text, when we look at it in light of Christ's redemptive work, we can see him everywhere through this passage. Verses 7 through 9 in particular talk about the law. But everything said of the law in that passage, you can say of Christ. So I think we need to go through a few of these. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 explains it well. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So again, there's many connections, and I think we should go through a few more. But even then, we see general revelation, we see the move to special revelation, and what is the most full picture of revelation we have? It's Jesus Christ Himself. So let's go through some of these attributes real quickly and apply them to Christ. So Christ is the law because he is the perfect lamb of Leviticus 1.3, which says this. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And Hebrews 9:13 and 14 kind of break that down and explain why that's important. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ is the law because he is sure or faithful. Second Timothy two, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Revelation 1.5 tells us that Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. Hebrews 3.6 says Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Christ is also the law because he is right. All his ways are righteous and upright. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father Except through me, Christ is the law because he is pure and clean. So not only is Christ pure and clean, but all who hope in him are pure and clean. 1 John 3, 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Christ's words are pure and purifying. So not just his person, but the very words he speaks. John fifteen three. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. His word alone is enough to purify. So there are many other ways in which you can see Christ in this passage. You could probably spend hours looking through this and making connections. He's a son that brings darkness on all things. Or, excuse me, I said that wrong. He is the one who brings light on all things that are in darkness, exposing them to the light of his purity. He brings justice. He brings power. He brings hope for his people. He's the one who revives our souls He makes the simple wise. He brings joy to our hearts. And this is one of my favorite descriptions, so I have to keep repeating it. He enlightens our eyes. He endures forever in perfect holiness. Our Savior is the sweetest and most important person in the entire universe. He's the fullness of God's revelation, warning us of our peril, redeeming us from our sin. He paid the penalty we cannot, and he calls us into his kingdom where he rules over it forever. So Christ is all revelation and the totality of the law. This is what Romans 10, 4 says. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So I hope that you all love the law of God because the law is Christ and he is your rock and your redeemer. So let me conclude. We began, we began with the proposition that because God is both creator and lawgiver, we must worship in word and in heart. So we really split that into two different points. And the first was that because God is the creator, we must worship with our words. So, first we looked at verses 1 through 6, which speak of God's revel- general revelation and the fruit of his speech. We should rejoice in creation and learn from it as it continually declares the glory of God and proclaims his handiwork. So, we too should emulate creation and the Lord by making our speech fruitful and by proclaiming the greatness of Christ always. The second we saw that because God is the lawgiver, we, we must worship with our hearts. We cannot stop at general revelation, expect to know God truly. It teaches us a lot, but we have to move on to God's word to learn about his law, our sin, and our need of redemption in Christ. So only in Christ can we understand the glory of God's character as he reveals it in his word. We're really called to do what David did and meditate upon the law of God day and night. Because in so doing, we are dwelling on the Lord and on his greatness. So only then, only at that point can we declare the glory of God with our words and imitate the Lord as we are called to do. So learn to meditate on Christ because there is nothing more valuable. There is nothing more precious or more rewarding. He is the fulfillment of the law and he is your redeemer. So seek to know him truly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we indeed thank you that you came in the flesh. that You became the law for us. That you not only call us to obey the law, but you enable us to fulfill it through your blood. Not because we live perfectly in this life, but because you already have. And because of your work, because of your righteousness, we are clean before the Father. Lord, help us to rejoice in that. Help us to declare your greatness to the entire world, but especially to those who don't know you. Let us proclaim the truth of the gospel to all. Help us to be forthright and bold in that to everyone we know. Lord, let us share the message of the gospel. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen.